for having me tonight. It's kind of hard having such a, a gifted pastor who teaches, right, coming up here and having to fill those shoes. But um, all in all, it is the word of the Lord, and I'm excited to be here, and thank you. Uh, for that. So we are going to be looking at Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 tonight. Um, so you keep your finger there, but we're going to start somewhere else because I have kind of a lengthy intro, actually. I wish I didn't, but there's. I just want to put it in context because I, uh, I was talking to my wife about this as I was preparing for the message, and uh, I was telling her how um, at face value, um, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is just so upfront. It's like so straightforward, so easy. It just tells you what to do. God is telling us what to do. But as we uh, look into it and dive into it, there's there's much more there that uh, that God wants to tell us. So um, if you read uh, ahead and uh, you came here tonight and you're like, well, I'm not married. Uh, I don't have a husband. I don't have a wife. Don't worry. This passage applies to anybody here tonight. So um, let's go to Luke chapter 10. Actually, that's where we're going to start. And uh, the title for tonight, the title for tonight is Marriage as a Cruciform Resemblance. Marriage as a Cruciform Resemblance. I see some of you guys are taking notes, which is awesome. Um, I think the best way to remember things is to take notes. Uh, at least that's the way it works for me. Uh, I need to take notes. So um, here in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, we have a lawyer from the group of the Pharisees. And as you guys remember, Pastor Brandon was saying that the Pharisees were, they were top of their league, right? They were the ones that kept the law. They had a law for a law for a law that helped them keep the law. So they had all these laws in place to keep them righteous before God to the point that it got to a place where it was not healthy. And so here we have one of these uh, lawyers. And so what's happening here is that Jesus basically just answered some questions for some Sadducees. And and, and he basically uh, did what Jesus did best, which say the truth and people just left, right? Uh, or people just turned away. And so here we have a Pharisee who says, well, the Sadducees are gone. I'm a Pharisee. Let me give it a try. And so here in uh, verse 25, and before we get in there, I always like to pray uh, that the Lord give us, gives us discernment and speaks to us through his word. So let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you, Lord, because you give us uh, your word uh, in a form that we can understand it. Um, you give us, uh, you gave us your life, Lord, but it wasn't just for our sins. It was for so many other things because there's going to come the day when we're going to celebrate with you in heaven as your bride. Um, and so, Lord, I just pray that uh, knowing that we may walk in that, Lord, and we'll see tonight uh, what you have for us, Lord. In your name we pray, amen. So it says in verse 25 of Luke 10, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So we see here to start off is that uh, he says, Teacher. He's saying, I'm ready to receive from you. But I don't think he really is because his question says otherwise. Notice that he says, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Right? He's saying, How can I get my foot in the door? How can I get 
saved is what he's saying. He's not asking, how can I follow you? He's not asking, how can I become a disciple or a, a, a godly man? He's just saying, how can I inherit eternal life? And so what the answer that he gives them here is, um, Jesus, of course, being Jesus, right? He already knows what's going on with this guy. He sees him, and from all the way, he's like, all right, I know what he's going to say. So then he says this in verse 26. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he throws the question back at him. And he answers, so this is the lawyer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so he answers them correctly. He answers them with the knowledge that he has as a Pharisee. They knew this, that you were to love the Lord your God. This is from Deuteronomy 5. And so then he says, and your neighbor as yourself, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So notice that Jesus says, do this and you will live. Um, Jesus tells him this. But Jesus also goes further than that, than saying just, just do this and you will live, okay? So if we go to Matthew chapter 22, Jesus expounds a little bit more on this. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. And in verse 40, it's the same thing happening here, except Jesus says something a little bit different. He says, on these commandments... Depend all the law and the prophet. On these commandments depend all the law and the prophet. That's something huge to say. Because if you look at the Old Testament, what you'll realize is that we have the Ten Commandments that are given to Moses. But then there are so many other commandments that are given to the Israelites. And so um, it's a huge thing to say. He says on these two um, depend all the law and the prophets. And uh, if you have the NKJV version, it says they hang on it, right? So then when I think about that, I think about it as the law and the prophets hanging by a thread, right? Like if, if these aren't it, if these two commandments aren't it, then, then, then there's nothing else, right? And so everything that's in the Old Testament, everything that's in the New Testament, or actually the New Testament wasn't there yet, but everything Jesus was going to say, he says, everything depends on these two, which is love God with all, and then he says, Love your neighbor as yourself. So what does Jesus mean by loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind? And also, what does he mean by loving your neighbor as yourself? Why does he put so much weight on these two commandments as to say that the prophets all depend on these? The law and the prophets. If we look at Exodus 20, and I'm not going to go there because I'm probably going to be running really tight on time, and I want to keep you guys long. Um, Exodus 20, that's where uh, God gives Moses the law, right? God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Some of you guys are already going through them because you guys haven't memorized. Uh, I don't have such memory like that, but I have an idea of what they are. Um, but in uh, 20, 1 through 17, basically, there's a total of 10 commandments. The first four commandments, if you read through them, are between man and God. Those are the first four, right? The first four are between man and God. And you can look at them yourself, uh, by yourself when you have a chance. 
the last six are between man and man. So man and his neighbor. And so it's so important that we see this because the Ten Commandments, even though they're Ten Commandments and there's many, many other commandments that they're giving, laws, really what they are is an umbrella for everything else. And so what we see here is that we see that Jesus, when he encounters this situation, he says the two greatest commandments, love God, love your neighbor. And he, we go back to the Old Testament, which basically says the same thing, that the first commandments are towards God and the rest are towards your neighbors. The rest are towards your neighbors. And so in regards to this statement in Matthew chapter 5, 17, Jesus goes even further to say that he didn't come to abolish the law. So those commandments in the Old Testament aren't all done with they're still connected he came to fulfill the law and then at the end of that small section 17 17 through 20 what he ends up saying is that unless you are more righteous than the scribes and the 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 scribes and the the pharisees that you're not going to inherit eternal um you're you're not going to enter into the kingdom of god is what he's saying so then it brings to mind and it says well The Pharisees followed all these laws. The scribes were like the top dogs when it came to religion, when it came to being righteous. I mean, you you read stories as far as like they would strain their water just to make sure that they didn't get any bugs in them at all. Because if they did, then they would consider themselves unclean and unable to serve God. And so what he's saying is, what he says is, you need to exceed the righteousness of that. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we go home and we clean everything off, we eat kosher and do all these things so that we could be righteous before God? Absolutely not. That's not what he's getting to. What he's getting to really is that Jesus is the glue in a way, right? Jesus kind of in a way um, that holds everything together, that holds the law, the Ten Commandments. These two commandments are important. The prophets, everything, the word of God, he holds it all together. And so when he says, love the Lord with your all and your neighbor as yourself, he says, it's only done through me. There's no other way to do it. It's only done through me. And so if we go back to Ephesians chapter 5, which I told you to hold your place and I lost my place. So Ephesians chapter 5. This is what Paul's going to reiterate here. He's speaking to the Ephesians, and we'll go into a little bit more about it, uh, about the Ephesians uh, towards the end. But here, Paul, the first thing he says, how do we we love God with our all? And uh, in about 20 verses, 21 verses actually, he's going to basically explain this. And I want to put... Walk you guys just through this. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to jump between verses because there's three main things I want to point out for. I want to point out here. And it's because it's going to put the text that we're going to study tonight into context. And so Paul here to the Ephesians, he says this in verse 1, 5-1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's mind-boggling. That's like... That's amazing that Paul would say that to the Ephesians and to us, really, because 
the Bible says that the word of God is living and powerful, right? That it's living. It applies to us as well. Why is that so important? Um, what does it look to be imitators of God? What does it look like to be imitators of God? Because we think of imitators, right? We think somebody that imitates somebody else. But Paul goes into detail with this. And here, in the next 20 verses or so, 21, there's three things he points out that mean to be an imitator of God. Um, It's to walk in love, to walk as children of light, and to walk in wisdom. So look at them with me really quick. In verse... Two, right after he says, be materials of God, he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So notice here that to be materials of God means to walk in love, means to walk in love, to be a living display of the love that God has for us. Um, You see, David would say that a formal or if you look at his writings, especially, I love Psalm 119, because he asks this question, how can a young man cleanse his way? Where's my young men and women here tonight? Everybody should be raising their hands. Do you know why? Because in Christ, we're all young. Imagine, we're going to live eternity. This is a fraction of the time. So they'll never let anyone tell you that you're not young. We're all young. But he says, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? And I'm quoting the NKJV. Uh, With my whole heart, I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. So we see here that he says, with my whole heart, I have sought you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Walking in love looks like this. And John, in 1 John chapter 4, if you go with me there, I'm going to have you jumping around for a little bit, and then we'll kind of slow down, hopefully. Uh, But in 1 John chapter 4, John takes it a step further. He says, it's not just about what you do. It's not just about what we uh, practice. But John takes it a little further. And he says, beloved, let us love one another. In 1 John 4, 7. One another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone, this is important, anyone, Christian or not, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. He says, God is love. So if we're not walking in love, then that he say what John would say is, then you need to check yourself because God is love. You don't have God in you if you're not walking in love. And so what we see here is that John takes a step further and says, it's not just about what we do. It's about the way that we walk. It's about God being love. And if we are loving in our lives, then that means that God is in us. This word love that he uses here is not just like... um, it's not just like the love that we use in our in, in our culture, right? Where uh, we say we love pizza. I love pizza, even though I'm not supposed to have it. Um, we love uh, each other, right? Or we love uh, our car or house or whatever it may be that you love. Our cats. 
I mean, actually, I don't say I don't know why he said our cats because I don't have cats. But <laughs> but that's not the love that the the Bible is speaking about here. The love that he's that he's speaking about is agape love, and uh, I don't have time to go through all of them. Uh, but basically, there's four different kinds, and agape love is like the highest form of love. Why? Because it's a self-sacrificial love. It's a love that's giving. It's a love that doesn't think of itself, but rather it gives it all. And as I'm talking about this, it should remind you of Jesus. That's the type of love that he's talking about. And so what he's saying is, John is saying, God is love. If you don't have God's self-giving, sacrificial love in you, then, then you need to check yourself because maybe you don't know God. Maybe you don't know God like you thought you did. And so, um, to finish this section, basically, uh, Jesus in John 15, 5, he also says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And when I hear this, I'm like, well, I, I did things for 28 years by myself, right? And I didn't know God. I didn't know Jesus. But when I look at the 28 years of my life, and I look at the last 10 years of my life that I have known Jesus, I start to realize what a waste. I accomplished nothing in 28 years. In 10 years in Christ, I've accomplished so much that I that I can't even speak of the wonders that have happened in my life and what I've seen, the glory of God and how everything. It, that wasn't even life. The last 28 years weren't life. There was something else. They were a nightmare or something. But we see here that he says, walk in love. Uh, going back to Ephesians chapter 5, he says, walk in love. And so one of the ways, because this section, these three things, basically what they are, is Paul's way of explaining loving the Lord our God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our strength, with all our mind. That's what he's explaining here. The second thing he says in verse 8, he says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So he says, walk in light. Notice here, though, what he says. He doesn't say that you have the light in you, and so you should walk in that light. He doesn't say that you should be light. He says, you were once darkness, and now you are light. Some of you guys said it. Some of you guys are still kind of like, wait, what? Yeah, so what he's saying is kind of what Jesus was saying. Without me, you can do nothing. He says, we were darkness. I don't know if you guys ever realized this. The Bible never speaks of uh, darkness and, and in connection with man as something that we do. Like, oh, I used to do these things. I used to be a bad person, but then I gave my life to Jesus and, and I became a good person. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says at all. It says we were darkness. We were evil. We were wicked. There was nothing good in us. But through Jesus and in Jesus, through the cruciform life, we become light. Why? Because the light now lives in us. And so it takes us to also another dilemma. Because if the, if the light lives in us, then that light should be shining through us. Right? And if that light is not shining through us, but it lives in us, there's something wrong there. So either the light lives in you or it doesn't. The light 
lives in us or it doesn't. And mind you, we're not always going to display that light. And the light that we emit as believers is always going to look different for every believer, right? Everybody's in all different stages of uh, their walk with the Lord. But all in all, if we have that light in us, then we sh- that, that light needs to emit through us. Okay, so Paul says to imitate Christ, to imitate God, is to walk in light because we are light now. That's who we are. We just have to walk in it. The next thing he says in verse 15, I'm trying to hurry up here. says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. So here we see that he says, look carefully that you walk in wisdom. This is why we could have all the knowledge of God, have all the biblical knowledge, have all the knowledge of whatever's going on in the world, and still not be walking in wisdom. Why? Because knowledge, all in all, in the end, is just knowledge. What is wisdom? What is wisdom? Wisdom simply is knowledge applied. It's taking that knowledge that we have and applying it to our lives. That is what knowledge, that is what wisdom is. It's applying it to our lives. And so, so important that when Paul says here, walk in wisdom, that we apply it to our lives. We apply this knowledge that we have to our lives. You see, knowledge without application is knowledge that's just going to puff us up. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Why? Because love looks like imitating God as dear children. Imitating God as dear children. Dear children. And so when we do imitate God as dear children, what happens is we start to live that cruciform life. We start to live that cruciform life. And we walk in wisdom out of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must know that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. He says without faith you can't please God. Why? Because we take that knowledge and we apply it in faith. And when we do that God looks at that and says... I am pleased with that. But when we have all this knowledge just sitting, it just puffs us up. And I think about this, and I think about when, when I have all this knowledge it's just sitting, and I'm not, I'm not applying it in any way. I just walk around with this big head. Imagine trying to walk through a door with a big head. Because you have so much knowledge, but you're doing nothing with it. It's just knowledge. So, what does Jesus mean by loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. It means to walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom. To be imitators of, of God. And so, on to the second commandment. Because we cover the first one. This is what Paul was saying. You spend probably a whole year on this. But, I know you guys can't be here for a whole year. Um... <laughs> So what does it mean to love our neighbor as ourselves? It seems like an easy question, right? 
It seems like a straightforward question, but again, there's so much to this. There's so much. So I'm going to take you back to Luke 10 because um, the lawyer who we're talking about earlier didn't really learn from the first time he did it. So he decided to go for a second round with Jesus. And so if we go back to Luke 10, we're going to look at verse 29. Okay, verse 29. So we see that the last thing that Jesus said, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Notice also that he's saying, do this, right? Do this. The lawyer has all this knowledge. But Jesus knows that he's not applying it to his life. He says, you know the law, you know the word, but are you applying it to your life? And so he says in verse 29, uh, well, the lawyer, uh, he says, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, imagine justifying yourself to Jesus. And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied. And so he asked the question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So notice how Jesus, he doesn't get tricked. He doesn't get falling into the pits of whoever's trying to catch him off guard. But rather, Jesus is ready. He's ready and he takes care of business. So here we go. He asks him, who's my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't tell him, oh, this guy's your neighbor, that guy's your neighbor. No, he throws it back at him. And what Jesus does here is that he tells him a story. He tells him a story of a man that is traveling a well-traveled road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Might be the other way around. Might have gotten that wrong. Either way, that road. And so they're traveling. He's traveling from one place to another. And this man, they don't say what man it is. But poor man, he gets robbed, he gets beaten, he gets left for dead. Like he's on the side of the road, just left for dead with nothing. And so what the story says is that a priest comes by, as Jesus is telling the story, a priest comes by and he, he must have seen the man because what he does is he goes along the other side of the road. Anybody ever do that? They see somebody need help and just like start walking the other way like you weren't going that way? Nobody? Okay. (laughs) So a priest does this, right? Then it says that he kept going. He went on his way. And then a Levite does it. He comes by and he does the same thing. He just takes off. So these are godly men. Uh, A priest, and I don't have time to go into all these things with a priest, but a priest He had responsibilities in the temple. He had to be clean and all these other things. So he's a godly man. And this Levi, he helped at the temple as well. So these are godly people. But they just leave this man man for dead. They just leave him there. And so what we see in verse 39, sorry, not 39, 33, this is what it says, what Jesus says, because there's a third man that came by. And it says, but a Samaritan, now, if you guys don't know what a Samaritan is, it's basically when the uh, kingdom of Israel um, divided into north and, and south, Israel and Judah. Um, what ended up happening is that eventually the northern kingdom ended up getting getting overrun. And basically what ended up happening is that um, Assyrians and Israelites mixed because they got taken over. Um, I don't remember the word for it, but basically they mixed in. And so if you look at commentaries and stuff, what you see is that a lot of people would call Samaritans mutts because they weren't they weren't Israelites and they weren't Assyrians or anything else, but they, they would call them mutts. And so basically this is not like somebody that would be totally respected. 
But look at what happens here. This person who you would never think would actually do anything. It says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, so he was on a journey too, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. This is so important. He had compassion. The Bible over and over says how Jesus was in a tight spot in some way or another, and he looked upon the crowd that just pressed in on him, and he had compassion. He had, even though he was considered a nobody, he was a somebody because he shared characteristics with Christ. He, he, he lived in a way that cruciformed life that we're learning about. And so he takes care of him. He, he gives him, basically he gives him his all, like all the way to money and pays for his hotel or whatever until he recovers. And then in verse 36, Jesus brings up this question to him. Jesus brings up this question to the lawyer. He's heard the story and he brings up this question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So the lawyer answers, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. So notice, the lawyer knows all the answers to the, Jesus' questions. But Jesus still tells them, "You do go and do likewise. Why? Because the lawyer was loving God, but he wasn't letting that light shine through him. He wasn't living that cruciform life. He had all this knowledge. He was probably walking around with his big head. I'm going to test Jesus all the time. But he was doing all this, but he wasn't putting it into action. He wasn't applying it to his life. And so... What I think Jesus is saying here is you could be the holiest, most knowledgeable Bible thumper man or woman that walked the earth. But if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, it counts for nothing. Why? Because he gives the two commandments. On all this, hang the law and the prophets, he says. So if you love God with your all, you're going to look at your neighbor in compassion, on, on your neighbor in compassion. You're going to have mercy. You're going to do likewise. And so, what does that look like? What does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked because that is what Paul gets into next. And that's the passage that we are looking at tonight. You see, Paul, back in chapter 5 of Ephesians, verse 22 he goes to metaphorically explain, metaphorically give an example of marriage between a woman and a man and marriage between the church and Christ. And how many here are part of the church today? Everybody should be raising their hands. And we should be glad of that. Because we're all part of the church of Christ. We're we're his bride. And I know for a man, he might be like, wait, I'm his bride? Like, what? Yeah, yeah, we are. We should be glad of that. <laughs> Don't worry. We're going to go with wives first, because that's what Paul addresses first. So in verse 22, he says this. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands. And I prayed a lot about this passage because I picked it. I don't know why I picked it. 
when Pastor Brandon said, hey, do you want to do, do take a teaching? And I said, yeah, give me this one. And I was excited about it. And then I, a couple weeks later, he reminds me of it. And I'm like, oh, that's the one I chose. Oh, I have the least experience in marriage. That's, that's going to be great. So I've prayed a lot about this. I've prayed a lot about this. So he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. You see, a verse before, in 21, he calls for a corporate submission. Not only wives, here he's calling wives, but he calls for a corporate submission. And he says, submitting to one another. Submitting to one another. So, um, here he's calling wives to submit to your own husbands. First of all, I want you to notice that it says, wives submit to your own husband. I think uh, at some point in time, this was taking, being taken out of context, and uh, men were calling for women to submit to them, and it's like, that's not what it says here. It says, wives submit to your own husband. And there's a reason why he says that. He's going to explain more. So here, the word submit is hypotasso. The word submit is hypotasso in the Greek, or old Greek actually. I had a couple of Greek friends in college, and they didn't speak this kind of Greek. They spoke another kind of Greek. And so, this word hypotasso, I hope I'm saying it right. Pastor Brandon speaks Greek, or he knows how to read Greek, so he probably knows it right. Uh, this is where I'm on the spot right here. Now it's getting hot. Um, but this word means to obey, to subject oneself to, to yield. So those are the meanings that I found for it. Uh, obey, subject oneself to, to yield. And um, I really believe that the word that best explains it is to yield. Is to yield. So to yield means to give the right of way in English. To give the right of way to someone. Right? Um, so really quick. Um, this last week, I was super busy and my mind was like just full of things that I had to do. And so... I, I, I was at a, at a store, and I, I took off from the parking lot of the store, and as I take off, I'm driving in my lane, and all of a sudden, I see this, uh, hopefully this was nobody here, that's going to be embarrassing if it was somebody here, but I see this, this car coming straight to me that all, that all of a sudden jerks off the road, like they literally just like jerked their vehicle off the road, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what are they doing, why are they acting so erratic? And so as I'm driving, I look down and I realize that the double yellow line that's supposed to be on my left side is on my right side. And now, mind you, in some countries that's okay, but here it's not. So what I realized was that that car that was coming towards me actually swerved out of the way because I was in the wrong lane. I was wondering why the guy on the right was turning left from the right lane. But there's only one, two lanes, one going the other way. Mind you, that was a terrible experience. But what that car did, regardless whether he had the right of way or not, he yielded, he yield, yield, yielded to, my, my, the, the, to me who was in his lane. And this is why I think that the word yield is... The best word to use here for submit this is what I think what Paul is trying to say. Because when he says to yield, 
what he really means is that wives are to yield to their husbands. Whether the husbands are right or wrong, whether the husbands are godly or ungodly, whether the husbands, they're to yield. Now, I see some frowns out there. You're probably saying, you don't know my husband. You're right, I don't. (laughs) I think what he's saying, though, is that obviously if there's abuse, like in a more serious note, if there's abuse or there's something that's life-threatening, you obviously have to get out of that situation. you got to get help. Um, it's also He's also saying, and he doesn't say here, but he's also saying that you're not going to follow uh, uh, your husband into sin. If, you're, if your husband wants to lead you into sin, you Christ is the head. And so we'll go more into that as to why this is important. Okay? But he gives three reasons here as to why wives are supposed to submit to their own husbands. And so the first one says, as to the Lord. The first one says, as to the Lord. So husbands are to, or wives are to, to submit to, wait, wives are to submit to their husband as to the, the Lord. So remember that verse 21, the one right before I told you about, where he called for a corporate submission? He says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So because you have this awe of Christ, this uh, respect that, that 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 you submit. You're not submitting to your husband because of because of him, but you're doing it because of Christ. So the first reason is because of Christ. And in Colossians, and we're not going to go there because I feel like I'm, we're running out of time here. He's what he's really saying is that uh, we do everything as unto the Lord. The second reason why he goes on to say here. Um, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So this is important here because the second reason why uh, the wife is to submit is because the husband is the head and that is the order of creation. And I know that now in our culture, um, th- there's a, a big push to reverse that. But if you guys look at the Bible, that's unbiblical. You can't reverse that. Why? Not because I'm saying it up here, but because God himself established it that way. And, 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 and so because he established it that way, we can't change that. But there's two main things here that I see that are important to this text and are important to the yielding. Okay, The first word that I see in uh, verse 23 is head. The second word is savior. Okay, The first word is head. So, when you think about head, it's a position that someone's given, right? And this position is given to the man or husband by God. Secondly, Savior, the word here is referring, it's not referring to an eternal salvation, but rather it's referring to a nourishment and a building up of a, a responsibility of a person. So, the nourishment as a responsibility of another person, okay? So, what we see here is that the husband is ahead in that he's given that position, but he has the responsibility, just as Christ to the church, to nourish, to build up that person he's responsible of. And here, for, for the husband, is the wife. For, the, for Christ, is the church. Okay? And we're going to go into husbands right now. Don't worry. 
I know we're talking about wives. I just want to make sure I explain this well. Because I don't want to be taken the wrong way. We're not recording this, right? <laughs> uh, but, but then you think about, about it in a physical way, right? You think about the head. Given the position as the head. This is why this is important, right? Why does a body have to submit to the head? Because the brain's there. Because the ears are there. You hear, you breathe oxygen for the whole body. You, um, one of the most important things, and I think it's the greatest gift, is that our head has a mouth. Not because to speak, right? But how many guys are food lovers in here? Oh, I shouldn't say that. Pastor Brandon was saying that. That that is something we got to work on. (laughs) Hopefully nobody is fasting. Uh, Well, hopefully you guys are fasting, but not in this moment. Anyway, I'm going to get myself in trouble up here. Um, so anyway, so the, the, the mouth nourishes a body, right? The mouth nourishes a body. And so it's so important that we see it in a physical way as well, because as the head, the responsibility of the head is to nourish the, the, the wife, to nourish the church. And that's what Christ is. And that's the way, uh, the third reason why. Um, and so anyway, metaphorically, Speaking of Christ and the church and the bride, marriage is an earthly example of our eternal marriage to Jesus. So marriage on earth, it's an example of our eternal marriage to Jesus. And if any of you guys are out there cringing because you're the bride of Christ, it's okay. Don't worry. It's going to be okay. We are the bride of Christ. So, um, but the question we need to really ask is, how does the church respond to Christ? How does the church respond to Christ? And verse 24 says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Okay? So the response of the church to Christ is in submission. And so Christ, um, in the same way, calls wives to submit to the head, their husband. Um, not because of the husband, but because of Christ. And because he gave himself for us. And so this is God's design. When we follow God's design, we glorify our Father in heaven. We are that light. When we don't follow the design, we're a distortion of what God set in place. And so in verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we see here that husbands are called to love their wives. And again, this love is not a special occasion, Valentine's Day or their birthday or something like that, right? Some men are like, I just love you so much. Why? Because it's Valentine's, my birthday, what? No, this love is agape love. That's a self-sacrificial, it's a practical action that we exercise towards our wives. Why? Because Christ did the same for us. He loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the question here is, how did Jesus give himself up for her? How? It's an easy answer, right? I see some of you guys already giving me the right answers. You know, the lawyer had all the answers too. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So, I mean, the answers that we we give are right, right? He died for our sins. He he, he gave everything for us and all these things. But I feel like that almost gets romanticized sometimes. 
in a way where it's like, oh, Jesus did all these things for us. I'm so loved. Jesus loves me so much. Yeah, but what are, what does it really mean? So I think the greatest example, if you go with me, and I hopefully I can find this, Hosea 3. So if you go with me to Hosea 3, who is a prophet of God, who sent to do a task that is very difficult. Um, so in Hosea 3, I think this is a, the, like a parable to this section here. And it says in Hosea 3 verse 1, And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man, and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver, and a homer, and lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So here, um, speaking about the children of Israel, this is for the children of Israel because this is what they were doing. And so God tells Hosea, you're going to go and you're going to marry, you're going to marry a prostitute is what he says. So if you go with me to uh, one page over, I think, uh, which is chapter 1, verse 2. He says, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for, by forsaking the Lord. So he went to Gomer, the daughter of Diblim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And so this reminds me of what Jesus did. This reminds me exactly of what Jesus did, because Jesus was sent as a prophet. Jesus was sent as a son of God, but Jesus was sent as a savior. And a lot of times, um, when we read passages like this, and I, I, I say this because I've thought this before, a lot of times we like to take a passage like this and say, man, this is like all the people that are against me. Like, I, I, I'm the victim in this, in this passage. But I think the way that Hosea meant it and God meant it when he, he said it was that in the same way that Israel played the harlot, in the same way we are the harlot. I am the harlot. I am a sinner because Christ died. Christ loved me. God loved me while I was still a sinner. He didn't choose me. He didn't choose you because we have something to offer we have nothing to offer God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Not even an inch of anything. But he still bought us at a price. He still bought us at a price. And though we played this role, he continues to pursue us. He continues to love us and give himself for us. And so in verse 4, of Hosea, hopefully you kept your finger. If you didn't, don't worry, I'll read it for you. He says, For the children of Israel shall dwell many days. Sorry, verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And so, they, Jesus redeemed them. Jesus, I mean Jesus. Uh, God says that he would redeem Israel. And so, the question should be, if we had nothing to offer, nothing to give, why did he do it? 
That's a good question. And Paul addresses it too in verse 26 of chapter 5. He says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with with the word, so that he might present to the church to himself in splendor with a spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So we see here that he says the reason why he bought her was her sanctification. The reason why Jesus gave himself for us was our sanctification. The reason that we as husbands are to love our wives is for their sanctification. That we might present her without spot or wrinkle, without blemish, holy and without blemish. So we see here that Paul says this. And um, so it's so important that we see how God or how Christ gave his life for us that we may give our life for others. Um, So then, continuing on in verse 31, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery, it's profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we see here that Paul says this is a profound mystery, a man and a woman becoming one in Christ. But this is what the cruciform life is, becoming one in Christ. And so you're here tonight and you're saying, well, I'm not married. I don't have a husband or a wife. Well, that's even better, Paul would say. If you don't have the desire, don't get married, he says, because then it's just you and Christ. So now you are loving Christ. You are obeying Christ. You are loving Christ because he loved you first. Though we have nothing to offer, he still loves us. And so... What we see here is that Paul metaphorically explains the second greatest commandment. The first great greatest was with the first part that we saw. The second greatest was here, and he explains that. So, when I was reading this, my question was, why, why did Paul need to explain this to the church of Ephesus? Because we're not going to go to it because we're running out of time here. Actually, we're out of time. Um, but in chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 15... Um, the church of Ephesus is commended. They're commended. He calls them saints. And not only does he call them saints, but they're commended for their faith in Christ and for loving their neighbor. So they were doing these things. They They had faith in Christ. They had the relationship with God going. And they were loving their neighbors. They were loving them in such a way that it was marriage as a cruciform resemblance. So why did he have the need to say these things? Well, if we go to Revelation, um, Revelation chapter 2, John, about 30 years later, from the letter of Ephesus, writes 
the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation that was given to him, what he saw. And in chapter 2, starting in chapter 2, he writes about seven churches. And one of these churches is the church of Ephesus. One of these churches is the church of Ephesus. And so, this is what it says. Chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And then he commends them. He says, you're doing all these great things. This 30 years later, think about it this way, okay? I know your works, I know your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So notice this. He commends them. He says, you're doing all these things right. There's all these things that you're doing right. 30 years later. You're doing all these things right. But he does say this in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. So what happens in a marriage when we abandon our first love? And I was talking to my wife about this uh, because I talked to her about the messages as I'm like thinking through them. But I was talking to her about this and, I, and my initial thought was like, okay, the marriage between a man and a woman, right? Like love fail, like the, you forget your first love and you no longer do the things that you used to do. And um, I got to say, women are so wise in my eyes. Like, uh, I don't know why God put us as a head because women can be very wise, Um and so, and so she says, but don't think about it that way. Think about it in a way that they lost their first love to Christ. That it is Christ. Because Christ should be first in a marriage. Because if Christ is first, then everything else falls behind it. And so in that same way, here at the church of Ephesus, they lost their first love. They lost that love that they once had. And it wasn't their love for going to church. Notice it doesn't say they lost their love for going to church. They lost their love for serving. They lost their love for whatever else, reading their Bible or praying. It doesn't say that. It just says they lost their first love. It means they lost that love that they had. But here, it's not going to end with condemn, not condemnation, a judgment, right? It's going to end Because he's going to tell them what to do next. So if we're here tonight and and, and we've lost that first love, we know that we've lost that first love. That marriage with Christ that resembles that cruciform life. Then John is going to give us some application of how to get back to that. And if you're here today and you say, no, I'm good. Well, the Bible says, take heed lest you fall. Take the application anyway. Apply it to your life. Because at one point or another, we're all going to cross this road. Because we're human beings. And John 3.19 says that we love darkness. And if you say, no, I don't love darkness, you probably do. You just don't know it. You haven't acknowledged it. But he says these three things. Let me finish here really quick. He says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you first did. So these three things. Remember, repent, and works. Remember, repent, and works. You see, 
in Hosea 3, 4, says that afterwards he was going to bring them back and they were going to seek the Lord. Psalm 119, 9 through 11, he starts with the question, how can a young man cleanse his way? Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart, is what he says. And so when what we do, how do we put this into application, is that remember to Set time apart with the Lord. Seek the Lord. That's where we start. Remember, love the Lord your God with all, with all that you are. We seek Him. Whether it be make time for, for reading your Bible, make time for praying. If you're being called to fast, ask the Lord. The Lord speaks to us. He's such a good God that He speaks. Secondly, repentance. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about godly repentance. You see, when we are exposed to God, when we expose ourselves to God vulnerably, and we say, God, I am here. Do with me as you please. Make, I'm making time for you. Then what happens is that we are in awe of God. We should be in awe of God. And what happens is this godly repentance that leads to life. Because the Bible says that ungodly repentance, we're just doing it to do it then it leads to dead. death. There's nothing there. So when we do repent, all the weight falls off our shoulders, all the weight falls off our hearts, and what happens is that we walk in that light. And the last one works. It's not enough for us to come to church and receive. It's not enough for us to listen to an audiobook and expect to receive. Or expect to be the light. That's not enough. Because James 2.17 says. Faith without works is death. You can have all the faith in the world. And pray for people. And all these other things. That's great. Lift up your voice. Yes we should. But if that's all you're doing. Then that faith is dead. Most importantly. As I said earlier. 1 Corinthians 8.1. Right? Knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. Let's not walk around with big heads. Let's put that into practice in our lives. And then Paul would say, if you don't work, you don't eat. That's what Paul would say. You can look it up on your own. I don't remember the verse for that. But uh, he says, if you don't work, you don't eat. What happens if you don't eat? You don't grow. Right? There's no growth if you don't eat. So let's work let's see how do we work let's get plugged in somewhere it's not enough for us to come and listen and receive let's get plugged into somewhere. there's so many gifts here at this church so many awesome people that i've talked to and and i know that people are doing stuff but if you're not get plugged in somewhere it doesn't have to be at this church it doesn't have to be in another church find the church that god is calling you to and get plugged in that you may grow in your gifts. That you may grow with other Christians. That we're not just taking all this in. Because we're called to love the Lord our God with our all. To love our neighbor as ourselves. And a, um, a, ma- a marriage as a cruciform resemblance is exactly that. That we... Um, are the example here on earth of that marriage that we're going to have someday. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you, Lord. Um, you're so awesome.